Good morning. Oh, come on. We can do a little bit better than that. Good morning. There you go. Good morning. Uh, there's Chad right there. I got a little bit of a story coming up for him. I'm, I'm not going to lie to you. It'll be just momentarily here. Um, if you're here visiting with us, um, my name is Ben James. I am the lead pastor here. Uh, we're, we're glad that you're with us this morning. Uh, as Kennedy said, you know, we're doing things a little bit different than, than normal. Don't worry. Jesus said it was okay. Uh, we, can, we can switch things up every now and then. Um, but we're going to be doing our and taking our, our time in our communion after we're done with the message this morning. Uh, I'm going to be explaining the table up here, here in just a few moments. Uh, but we are going through Exodus this year here at First Church, and we are at the 10th plague. And we talked last week that the plague isn't maybe necessarily the most accurate translation for that word uh, that we could possibly use, uh, strike, uh, you know, God's signs, uh, something like that is, is more, probably a little bit more accurate and appropriate. But this morning we're going to be looking at the 10th of these strikes, the 10th, um, you know, wonder and sign of God that came against the Egyptians, and that is that of the Passover. Now, just briefly, what I want to do is, you know, this is, a, this is a challenging one. I mean, you know, any of the plagues, as you look at them, to not only cover them from a historical perspective of what happened, uh, and then, you know, do that justice and be accurate with that, there's also this element that God's Word is relevant in our lives today. It's relevant and applicable in our lives today. Amen? Like every portion of the Scripture is relevant and applicable our lives today. So this is one of the more challenging weeks, at least in, in my preparation, in, in my study, as to how to look at this 10th strike, which was the, the, the Passover, the death of the firstborn, but also make it applicable and relevant. And how do we pull from Scripture? Because, you know, just to make sure I'm clear, this is not me making God's Word relevant and applicable, okay? This is God's Word being that, and me in my, my, my ways of thought sometime being able to settle uh, and have God reveal that to me. But what the Passover was, what the plague of the firstborn was, is that, you know, we'd seen all of these stepping up, you know, this ramping up all throughout these strikes that we've covered one through nine, God trying to be merciful and gracious through these and give opportunities between each one for Pharaoh to do what he had been told that God was asking him to do and just to let the people of Israel go. Um, and he just, he wasn't doing it. So it comes to this where God gives instructions to Moses to uh, institute what's going to be known as the Passover. Basically, if you read uh, chapters 11, 12, and even into 13, you began to see that God is talking about this Passover, which is going to be the plague that wipes through the land of Egypt and kills the firstborn. Basically, the destroyer, the death angel, is coming and is going to destroy the firstborn of each family, both children and livestock. But God gives instructions. He says the death angel, the destroyer, will know to pass over your house or your place of residence if it sees the blood of the lamb that's going to be sacrificed on both the doorpost and the lentils. So the entirety of the doorframe, you know, blood would have been applied up top and to the, to the sides of the doorframe as well. So as it happened, as it came through, it would see the blood and it would pass over 
that house or that residence and everyone inside would be safe. There would be no calamity. There would be no death come upon that house that night. Now, as we lead up into this, as you're reading, it's just kind of one of those situations where you don't really expect what Scripture does here because God's giving this detail as to what this plague is going to consist of, and then he goes, oh, but before that, I want you to sit down and enjoy a meal. I want you to have a meal. So that lamb that you're sacrificing, that the blood's going to be applied, you're actually going to take it, you're going to cook it, and you're going to have a meal that evening. And here's how I want you to have that meal. So it happens, just as God said. And ultimately, we'll see next week as we, as we cover this coming out of Egypt for the Hebrew nation, uh, that this was, at least for a little while, the straw that broke Pharaoh's back and allowed the Israelites, the Hebrew nation, to leave out of their bondage. And what we, what we need to understand is there's just a few things here that I want us to zone in on before we get here. And I, I'm really, I'm going to ask you uh, to do your best to stay engaged this morning because there's going to be a lot of information. Uh, there's going to be a, a, a lot of history, a lot of tradition that we're going to step through and we're going to explain. I just ask that you try to stay focused with me as much as you can, okay? If I can stand up here and smell this lamb and stay on track, then I'm hoping that the roast in your crock pot, the temptation of that at home that you can't smell, doesn't keep you from... And, and just the, the side story, I've got, I've got two before we get into the teaching. This week, I probably sent one of the most detailed text messages that I've ever sent in my life. Because I knew I wanted the lamb, okay? I, we'll have a picture of it here in just a minute up on the screen. But, you know, basically... There's the lamb. I mean, this thing smells good. So I know that Chad and them have them on their farm. So I text Chad. Not only do I need this, not only do I need the lamb, but Chad, I need the post-sacrifice lamb. Because I knew that if I would have just said I need a lamb for Sunday morning, that he would have been up here trying to sacrifice it in the middle of the worship. And then I would have been like, well, it's been a good run. We'll see you all later. Hopefully you'll continue to follow me on social media. So we've got the lamb fully cooked, and, and I'm going to move this before I trip over it. And I'm going to be honest with you. I ordered all this stuff this week. This is olive tree wood here from Jerusalem. I'm not necessarily saying this is what Jesus used at the Last Supper, but there's a chance, right? Who knows? I knew that these cups... We're not going to be full-size cups. I knew that going in when I ordered them. I did not, however, know that they were going to be this size cup. So just look past. This is not to scale, okay? You know, on all of, this is not to scale. All right, so just wanted to get that out there. So this relevance of this Passover. Yeah, we have these themes. We talked about the five themes of Exodus. And there's basically three acts, or three scenes, if you will, that the book of Exodus can be broken down into. And this whole time so far in our study, we have been in this first act. What we're covering today brings that first act to a close. We're getting ready to move into the second act. And I believe even that is significant as we go along and see what's happening. But two of the themes that we talked about of the book of Exodus is one, that God reveals himself. 
God reveals himself in ways that's never been known before. God shows himself and gives uh, a glimpse of his character and who he is more in the book of Exodus than he has at any other point in time leading up to this. So we see that, and then we also saw that one of the main themes was liberation from bondage. Okay, the Israelites had been in Egyptian bondage, captivity, and oppression for nearly 400 years at this point. And we're seeing that this is the beginning of this liberation of freedom. So I began to think, how, how do we look at this? How do we learn from this today in our lives? How do we apply this, and how does it become practical to us? And I'm going to read a passage of Scripture out of the, the New Testament. So if you wouldn't mind to go ahead and, Austin, give me that passage out of Matthew 26. I'm going to be reading verses 17 through 30. If you'd like to turn there, I'd encourage you to do that. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the back of the pew in front of you, or you can follow along with me on the screen. Verse 17 out of the 26th chapter of Matthew says, Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Pray with me, if you would. Father, uh, as we take this time, and look at not only the Passover that led to the release of the captives in Egypt. God, let us learn, reveal to us in just an amazingly powerful way how this meal that we just read about where Jesus shares with his disciples not only signifies the Passover and the freedom that the Israelites were to walk in, but also this freedom that you allow us to walk in. God, please give me the words to speak today. Holy Spirit, I ask that you give me your inspired words and let my voice be your instrument this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we begin to look into the Passover, if you ever sit down and you study the Passover in great detail, you'll, you'll know that there is no amount of justice that can ever be done uh, in 20 to 30 minutes 
trying to articulate all of the traditions, all of the ties, all of the significance and symbolism and the way that it points us to our Savior. But what I want to do with the remaining time that we have today is I want us to look at the elements of this table, what Jesus did with his disciples, and how that applies to us today still. Because what we're seeing in this passage is a tradition that's 1,500 and some years in the making. Okay, so I mean, we're not talking about just some, you know, we've done this for six months, we've done this for a few years, and now it's kind of being transitioned. We're talking about 1,500 plus or minus years here that this has been done. So this is significant. Actually, the most significant time on the Jewish calendar still to this day. What we see happening in the Gospels, and you can read these different accounts, uh, is during this time, we see the last authorized God-ordained Passover. But we see the first Lord's Supper. We see the last certified Passover, but we see the first communion time. And that's what we will hear in just a few moments. It'll enter into a time of remembrance together. We still do that to this day. But I want us to look at the elements of the table that would have been present there during this evening. Now, in order for Jesus to institute the Lord's Supper he would have also had to fulfill the last Passover. So I want to give you just, this is a side note, this is not necessarily essential moving forward, but the more that you dig into this and the more you see what Jesus did, and the more fulfillment and the more symbolism, and the more that everything points to him, we shouldn't, we really shouldn't be awed any more than what we are, but there are some times that you just hear things, see things, read things, and you're just like, my goodness. I mean, it's just like, this is so awesome. This is so amazing. This, this Jesus, this Savior continues to amaze me, even after 30-some years of serving him. And I hope that with each and every one of you, he is still amazing you on a regular basis. So as we look at this, he had to fulfill the last authorized Passover before he could institute the first communion the first Lord's Supper. And here's how I want to say that he did that. Did you know that there were two times of Passover that was celebrated by Jews? I didn't. You see, there was two different types, there were two different groups of Jewish believers. You had the Galilean Jews, which would have been most of the disciples, and then you had the Judeans, the traditional Jews. And Passover had to be uh, observed on a particular day. This year, in what we're reading here, was on a Friday. But for those of you who may be a little bit more familiar with it, when did the Last Supper take place? What day of the week was it? Do you remember? This was on a Thursday. This was happening on a Thursday evening. Jesus was crucified on the Friday, right? The, we, we do the Good Friday service. 
the Judeans celebrated their Passover on Friday. But the Galilean Jews celebrated theirs on Thursday. And it was a matter of what they defined as the day beginning. You see, the Galilean Jews viewed the day from, I believe the Galileans did it from sundown to sun up. And I believe the traditional Jews did it from sun up to sundown. I may have those backwards, please forgive me if I do, but that was the difference in the groups. At this point, Jesus was fulfilling the Passover because the Galilean Jews would be celebrating the Passover at the exact same time. And we learn this through a book called the Mishnah, which is a codex of Jewish laws. Uh, and we also learn it through the Jewish historian Josephus, if any of you are familiar with him. But we learn all of this through the Mishnah, that the Galilean Jews would have been celebrating their Passover this Thursday. So Jesus is fulfilling the Passover meal right here during this time. But he still had to be sacrificed as the spotless lamb, right? So how can you do that at the same time, fulfill it, partake of the sacrifice of the spotless lamb and be the spotless lamb at the same time. It's the differences between the Galileans and the traditional Jewish believers. Because on Friday, let me ask you this again, how many of you that maybe studied this, at what hour do we believe, do we see recorded in the Gospels that Jesus was crucified? Does anybody remember that? It's around 3 p.m. Okay, it's around 3 p.m. During that time was the exact same moment that tr the traditional Jews were commanded to take their lamb to slaughter. At that three o'clock window was when the lamb of the Passover was commanded to be slaughtered. Jesus died. He, he said, it is finished when he gave it. When he died, it was the, not only was he the sinless lamb, but he was fulfilling every aspect of law that could possibly be fulfilled. So Jesus, this awe-inspiring man, fulfilled the Passover by partaking of it and then became the Passover lamb. So we see the last Passover in, observed and the first communion instituted. So let's look at this table. There would have been different elements to this table, and here's, here's kind of the order of it. Hey, look at that, Austin's a step ahead of me. Look at that lamb, doesn't that look good? I just smell that. Right. So the elements of this is you would have had four cups. You would have walked away not thirsty with these, right? You would have had a wash basin you would have had a bowl of water that had salt included. You would have had bitter herbs. You would have had a fruit and nut paste. You would have had unleavened bread. And then you would have had a portion of the sacrificial lamb. Okay? So that's what we're dealing with here. That's what we have now. I want to take you through the order of this real quickly, and then I want to go back to the significance of it and what it means for us today. So you would have come in, and you would have had your first cup. I don't know if I'm going to be able to get over this or not. You would have had your first cup. It's the cup of blessing. Bless it, Lord. <laughs> yes. 
So this would have been known as the cup of blessing. So you'd come in, you would have had the first cup. Then you would have moved over to here, to the wash basin, and you would have washed your hands. You would come over, dried them. Then you would have partaken in these bitter herbs, which is like horseradish. Yeah, I mean, how many of you had just like straight horseradish before? It's just, yeah. And there would have been, you know, several other herbs mixed in with it that were extremely bitter. So you would have had that. Then you would have come back and you would have broken the unleavened bread and you would have taken at least a little piece of that and dipped this into the fruit and nut paste. Okay? At that point, you would have moved to the second cup. And this is a cup of reflection, a time of remembrance, a time of thankfulness of what we do. And you would have seen that because at this point they would have began to sing. And they would have, they would have been singing something called the Hallel. The Hallel, which is kind of the root of where we get our word hallelujah, which is a three-part compound word. But Hallel means to praise. And the portion of Scripture that they would have been singing at this point would have been Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. During this portion of it, right after the, uh, you know, the second cup, they would have sang Psalm 113 and Psalm 114. So they've got this song of praise. Then they would have gone in and they would have had the lamb. At that point, the server, whoever was leading the meal, at that point would have gone back in, washed their hands again, and then began to lead them into a time of reflection, like a deeper moment of reflection of this is why we're having this meal. This is going back to this exodus. At that time, they would have eaten the remainder of the bread with the lamb. So this is kind of like the main course. At that point, they would have moved to the third cup. And this cup is also another cup of blessing. And a side note, this is probably, this is probably when Jesus was instituting that this is, you know, this is this cup, this is my blood. This is the third cup, the cup of blessing. After that, they would have gone back in and finished the Hallel, which would have been 115 through 118. So they would have sung these. And if you ever get if you get a chance to read Psalm 113 to 118, read it all the way through and imagine this singing in reflection and remembrance. And after they finished that, they would have come back to their fourth cup. And they would have done that. They weren't done yet, though. After the fourth cup, they had one more thing. Now, it's, it's debated a little bit. Most theologians and scholars believe, because that's what the traditional Jews are still doing today, is that at this point, it would have been Psalm 136. There are 26 verses in Psalm 136. And this phrase, for his steadfast love endures forever. You want to know how many times that phrase is repeated in Psalm 136? 
is repeated 26 times. Because they would make a statement of remembrance of what God has done or something that they were thankful for, something he delivered them from or something that he had brought them out of. And at the end of each of these statements, they would make the statement, for his steadfast love endures forever. So let me take us back through these elements here and kind of explain to you what it meant then and for us what it means now. They would have had this bowl, this wash basin. It would have had a couple areas of significance back then. Number one, as we've learned, it's very, very important to have clean hands when you're eating. So it would have been a physical cleaning, but it was also symbolic of the need of God's washing away of our sins, of God, uh, that, that inward thing. So this was not only an outward cleansing, but it was symbolic of us needing God for this internal cleansing as well. As we would move from there, there's, they always kept a basin of salt water as well, and from time to time, they, they would take green, like a green leafy vegetable, and they would dip it in there. And that was to remind them, the salt water was to remind them of the hundreds of years of tears that they shed in Egyptian bondage. So that was a reminder of their enslavement. The bitter herbs, when dipped into that, that was serving to remind them of the bitterness that had built up in their hearts and the bitterness that they had experienced while they were in bondage. The fruit paste was symbolic of God's leading out in his deliverance and something that helps to take what is once bitter and wash it away because they, they happened in sequence. Because this was almost like a palate cleanser from the salty bitterness here. The unleavened bread, God, whenever they left from Egypt, he instructed them to take your bread. Don't, don't take any leaven. Don't let it be leavened. In Scripture, leavening agents are always referred to as influence. They're always, always symbolic of influence. So what God was saying is like, when you go out of Egypt, do not take the Egyptian influence with you. Go out a new people. So that's what the unleavened bread stood for. The lamb was the spotless, sinless, innocent lamb. Now, for the 1,500 or so years in between this, and still to this day for the traditional Jewish people, this lamb had to be different from any other lambs that you had. It basically had to be a pet. Like this lamb would have been kept in the house with your family. You would have treated it like part of the family, like we do dogs and cats. Now, not for sure why cats, but we do. We do. And the reason that it had to be this lamb is because they wanted it to be a reminder of just how much our sin costs. Because it needs to cost us something that we care about. Have you ever lost a pet that was just really, really close? I mean, like you really just love this pet. Now just imagine that each year. And you're sacrificing it. And it's a reminder of just how much your sins cost because that sacrifice is not guilty of anything. 
you're the guilty one. Now, this sacrifice, we see all the way from the beginning, all the way back to the book of Genesis, we see that sacrifice is necessary. We see that it's commanded by God. And as we get a little bit closer to this point, what we find out is without the blood, there is no sacrifice. Because when you sacrificed to God, it couldn't just be a, I'm, I'm trying to word this well, you couldn't just like smother the animal. Because Scripture says that life is found in the blood. There has to be blood shed. So this was going to be the reminder to them, and it still is to, the, to this day to traditional Jewish people, that this is the elements that we're dealing with here. So what would it have meant, not only to the disciples moving into this new covenant, because what we see is we see this Passover being the conclusion of the old covenant. And we see Christ death, entombment, and resurrection as the institution, the starting point of the new covenant. Well, here's how we can see Jesus in all of these elements. And I hope as we get ready to move into a time of communion, I hope this impacts you because I'm going to, I, I will be as transparent as I can be Sometimes, on Sundays, communion just becomes part of what we do. I just take the bread, I take the cup, it's just habit. But what I hope that this does is that it resets in this church and in our minds what the true purpose of this table is. Because we're going to see Jesus in all of these. So we see the salt water. Not only did it remind them of the tears that they had while they were in bondage, we see the bitter herbs that dealt with the inward struggles, the bitterness, the, the conditions, the way that they were treated while they were in Egypt. These are still symbolic for us today because in our sin, in our captivity, sin is not Sin is not something that's passive in our lives, folks. Egypt is a representation of sin in a believer's life that Jesus Christ came to lead us out of. Amen? So this salt water, this bitter herbs, whenever we do this, if we were to do this, it should remind us of what Jesus has done because Jesus has delivered us from our tears. He has delivered us from this bondage. He has delivered us from this bitterness. All in a price that we should have been paying. We see the fruit and the nut mixture. This is that thankfulness, that gratefulness as we're going through the cups of blessing, as we're going through the cups of reflection, we're not only thanking God for what he's done, we're reflecting on where he's brought us from, but we also have elements here to remind us of we have a new life in Jesus Christ. John 10, 10, we covered this just a few weeks ago that the thief comes but to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come to give you life and life more abundantly, life to the full. 
And as we move into the unleavened bread, think about this just for a moment of what this piece of bread should represent in your life. Now, he told them to come out of Egypt and not to bring any leavening agents of Egypt because he did not want any of the influence of that culture, of that way of life, of that people in their new lives. Folks, this should serve to remind us that in Christ Jesus, our sins are cleansed. And that we are not to bring the leaven of our old life with us, the sins, the habits, these things that we've fallen into, these things that we've become friends with, these dysfunctions and all of this stuff that, you know what, we may still struggle with, but God is telling us to say, leave the influence of the world behind because I've called you to something new. I've called you to something better. I've called you out of death and destruction, and I've called you into life and fullness of life. But you can't have that if the leaven of the Pharisees, if the leaven of sin, if the leaven of the world still exists in your life. We're actually instructed in the New Testament to let the leaven of the kingdom of God replace the leaven of the world. So allow the kingdom of God and his word and his ways be the influence in your life. Don't let the ways of the world be the influence of your life. Don't let sin be the influence of your life. Listen, it, life would be so much easier if we could live for Jesus but hang on to our sin and our old ways and our influences. It would be so much easier, right? And that's what so many of us try to do. But Jesus says, when I deliver you, I deliver you out of that bondage for good. I don't want you having any of that influence to come with you. And then we see the sacrificial lamb. And that is where Jesus at that hour, at that 3 p.m. hour, You know that sacrifice of that lamb that didn't deserve it? You know that sacrifice of that lamb that did nothing wrong? You know that sacrifice of that lamb that we were talking about that lived in the house that was supposed to remind them of just how much our sins cost? That's what we're reminded of with the lamb. When we see this Jesus, when we see this Savior, beaten, mocked, scorned, spat upon, dying on a cross, laying in a borrowed tomb, that's what we see. Is we see this, the Lamb that was slain for our sin for what we've done. Not what he's guilty of, not what he's, not what he's done, not tendencies that he has, not habits that he has, but what we have done. That's what we're reminded of. Now, I, I love this. I'm, I'm going to, kind of in my closing here, uh, a, a few things that we learn from Jesus' teaching here during this past passage is we learn just how terrible human, humans really are if you don't believe me so they washed 
So that means all the disciples would have washed. And again, we're talking about it would have been symbolic both externally to get clean and internally because we need cleansed in there as well. So we're, we're understanding this purification thing that we are not good in our core. So we're, we're, we're doing this. And then just a little bit after that, you want to know what they start doing? According to the other gospels, they start arguing about who's the greatest. They start struggling with their pride. And Jesus then, most likely, it would have been the towel that they would have dried their hands with. Jesus, in an act of humility, steps out of the sequence of tradition and teaches them a humbling lesson and a rebuke. And he begins to wash their feet as they're arguing about who's the greatest. But we also learn that this, what we're getting ready to do, we need to continue not only to remember the sacrifice that he made, but also to look forward to the day to where we partake in a Passover meal with him again. Because he says that you will not partake of this meal again until I return in my kingdom. So how awesome, is, how awesome of a thought is that, that we will be sitting down one day and we will be dining with Jesus? the sacrificial lamb.